Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an ophthalmologist who specializes in retinal emergencies explains what's important to know about retinal tears and detachments. Retinal detachment, retinal tear, flashes, they are emergencies. They have to uh, seek care as soon as possible. A pediatric surgeon talks about preparing your child for surgery. The biggest fear is, of course, not only the anesthesia itself, but the surgery. And most children do better when we take away that unknown, um, because they usually imagine things way worse than they actually are. And a pediatric nephrologist discusses kidney dialysis for children. Performing the dialysis in children is different and often more complex. So we have a team that is trained to be able to serve those needs. All that, plus a visit from the Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear from a pediatric surgeon about how to prepare a child for surgery. Then a pediatric nephrologist talks about the importance of dialysis services. But first, we'll hear from an ophthalmologist about retinal tears and retinal detachments. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A retinal tear or a retinal detachment are ophthalmic emergencies that need to be identified quickly in order to have a good prognosis. With me to talk about these conditions is a retinal specialist from Upstate, Dr. Amir Yazdanyar. He's an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual sciences and neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Yazdanyar. Good to be back. Now, what can you tell us about the retina? What part of the eye is the retina? I usually uh, use this analogy uh, that the retina and in general, the eye function like a camera. Uh, obviously, there are lens in front of the camera and there's a film in the back of the eye. And the film is a sensitive layer that captures the light and we can basically see a picture. Uh, retina functions the same way. It's a neurosensitive part of your eye, which is located deep into your eye, like you film in the camera. And it would capture the light and translate it into electrical signals that then your optic nerve will take those signals into your brain for processing. And this way uh, you can see the pictures. So if I want to kind of summarize it, the retina is a neurosensitive part of your eye that basically capture the light, translate into signals that potentially your brain will capture it as an image. So we need the retina. If we don't have the retina, we can't see, it sounds like, without it. Uh, that, that's, that's a correct statement. Basically, we have multiple disease of the retina. Then if you look at the, the structure of the eye, everything looks in place and fine, but if the retina is not functional, Therefore, even though the front part of the eye and the vasculature and the muscles and the lens and everything is functional, but if the retina is not in place and is not functional, therefore, there is no image being created and transferred into your brain. Uh, I can give you an example. We have a lot of patients with inherited retinal disease that they have damage to the retina. And if you look at it, it looks normal, but there are tiny cells or even a single molecule, which is uh, dysfunctional and this transduction of the signal is compromised. Therefore, even though we have like a normal anatomy, but the integrity of the system in terms of biochemical reactions and transduction of the signal is compromised. Therefore, we won't be able to um, see anything even though we have the, the structure in place. Well, now how does the retina, how is it expected to change as someone ages or does it change as we That's age? A very good question. Uh, retina does change with age. Um, a retina has uh, different layers and also has a very extensive blood supply. And now we know because of the human studies, a lot of imaging modalities and also some animal studies, we know that with age, the thickness of the retina will diminish. And as you grow older, you have a thinner retina. 
the vasculature of the retina is also is not as perfect as it is when you're like a 10 year old. With age, the vascular density will decrease as well. Uh, the connection between the cells, there are like you know, millions and millions of cells in your retina that are wired up. They are connected to each other. They form this connection called synapses. And with age, this connection between the cells is not perfect either. And the total number of synapses are decreased. We, we have evidence to show that there are cell death and gradually the number of the cells in your retina will decrease as you age. And uh, these are overall this uh, changes of the retina we do see in a normal individual. Most of the time in a healthy individual with good diet, no, no other disease, they are able to maintain a perfect vision. Despite the fact that they go through all these changes, they are still able to maintain a good vision, a useful vision. Obviously, if you have other risk factors such as poor diet, smoking, high blood pressure, inherited retinal disease, or any damage or trauma to your eye, would you, you will notice some changing your vision much faster. Well, as we um, as we talk about retinal tears, you mentioned the thinning of the tissue as a person ages. Does that set them up to become more prone to a tear if you're older? Um, that's correct. Uh, you know, when we are talking about the risk factors of the retinal tear and retinal detachment, aging itself is a huge risk factor. We do see a lot of patients they come in without a history of any trauma. And just because um, they get older, and I'm pretty sure we're going to cover this topic in this conversation today. As they get older, the retina is thinner. There might be some changes in the peripheral retina. And as soon as they have any um, movement of the vitreous, which is attached to the surface of the retina, uh, they end up having retinal tear and consequently retinal detachment. So how would someone know that they have a tear happening? What are the symptoms? Um, there are very prominent symptoms that usually patients they come in with because they are really bothersome. They will notice floaters, meaning that uh, there are tiny spots, cobweb, different patients, they explain them uh, with different language. And they come in different shape, color, or flavors. But overall, floaters are tiny or lines or tiny spots that patients they notice uh, in the field of the vision that they never had before. Uh, if you talk about um, retinal detachment, retinal tear, basically you're talking about attraction on the retina that translates into flashes. I usually explain to the patient that flashes are uh, similar to 4th of July fireworks. A lot of shimmering lights, showers of like the sparkles that you know come down and they, they, they are very consistent, very persistent. And and the patient will notice them for a long period of time. And that's another prominent sign of retinal detachment. If we have a small size retinal detachment, it may not be visually significant, but if it turned into a half an eye retinal detachment or a complete retinal detachment, then uh, the, vision, the, the patients, they usually experience vision loss, either a complete vision loss or a limited cut in the field of the vision. And those are the major signs. It's flashes, floaters, and uh, a cut field in the vision or uh, basically complete vision loss. Well, are these, if, if someone's experiencing a symptom, any of those symptoms, are those things that need to be acted on immediately? Do they need to go to the emergency department or, or do they call a primary care doctor? I mean, what's the right course of action? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, Nowadays, I think most of the patients, they have access to a smartphones and they can Google the stuff. And as soon as you type in vision loss or flashes, floaters, you will, you will get a lot of information that will kind of guide you towards the right direction. Retinal detachment, retinal tear, flashes, they are emergencies. And I don't think that any patient uh, has to kind of wait on them and keep up with the symptoms. Uh, they have to uh, seek care as soon as possible. Um, obviously, they need a retina specialist care, and if they can get themselves to a place that they can, and um, even optometrists, ophthalmologists, or retina specialists, it depends where they are, how far away from the hospital are they, and uh, they need to immediately be seen. And these are, I have seen 
very bad outcome of a situation that there was a small tear that turned into a retinal detachment. The patient didn't pay attention, and we see the patient now like four weeks or five weeks after the retinal detachment. And usually those patients, they don't do well. Uh, kind of loop back to the question that you asked. Uh, yes, if you notice flashes of light, floaters, or any change in your vision, that is an emergency and you need to seek care. You can call your primary care doctor, get a referral, or go to the emergency room if it's in the middle of the night or over the weekend. At Upstate, we have like a full coverage over the weekend, day and night, and they are welcome to come to the eye clinic during the daytime, or they can go to emergency room and one of our residents will come and take a look. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with ophthalmologist, Dr. Amir Yazdanyar. We're talking about what's most important to know about retinal tears and retinal detachment. So let me ask you, if someone does come to the emergency department or your office with symptoms like this, how do you go about diagnosing what's happening and how to treat it? Um, obviously, my clinic, everybody gets dilated and they will have a thorough um, eye exam. And if the patient is symptomatic, uh, obviously, doing an eye exam on a diabetic without flashes of floaters is very different from a patient who is coming in with flashes, floaters, and some change in the vision. So we usually do a thorough exam and we do a escular depressed exam, uh, meaning that we use like a tool called a escular depressor. We kind of press around the eye. Some of the patients are comfortable. Some of the patients are uncomfortable. We try to make it as gentle as possible. And this way, we basically, we do a thorough 360 exam. We look at every part of the eye, every corner of the eye, and we look for the cause of these new onset floaters and flashes. Uh, Sometimes I have had a patient that they're uncomfortable with the exam or because of the tear they had, they had like a lot of bleeding in the eye. And those are the situation that we can uh, take the patient for exam under anesthesia and uh, possibly doing a vitrectomy surgery in the operating room uh, to kind of save the eye and put the retina back in. So uh, these could potentially need um, emergency surgery to be done, right? If the, correct. If the patient has a retinal tear without having a uh, complete retinal detachment, we are able to manage mm -hmm. that in the clinic. We do an office procedure called laser retinopexy. Retino is the retina and the pexy, meaning that we fix the retina by the way of the putting laser shots around the tear. And most of the patient, if they have isolated tear without the retinal detachment, uh, we can take care of them in the clinic. The second option that we have is a cryo, which is like a long, cold probe that we kind of uh, freeze the area of the uh, retinal tear externally if there is a limited view to the area. Uh, that we want to laser. So these are the two main ways that uh, basically we treat these patients in the clinic. But if uh, unfortunately patient end up having a retinal detachment, then we have to take the patient to the operating room and perform a surgery called pars planar vitrectomy. And the meaning of that is we enter the eye, we remove the gel and we fix the retinal detachment, we put the laser shots and we usually fill the eye with a gas bubble or air bubble. Uh, depends on the type of the retinal detachment. I personally try to get them in the operating room as soon as possible. Because when the retina is detached, the connection between the cells is compromised. And usually the, the photoreceptors, those tiny cells that capture the light and translate it into the image, they start dying off within like three to five days after detachment. So uh, I usually, I personally take them to the OR as soon as possible. I have done retinal detachment with her in the middle of the night and uh, you know over the weekend. And if they come to the clinic during the weekdays, we can always take them to the operating room within two, three days and get that fixed. So it sounds like time can be of the essence there that you really need to act on some of these. What are the chances that vision can be preserved in a retinal detachment? Uh, that's a very good question. If you look at the history of retinal detachment repair, we have come a long way. Now we are completely equipped with microinvasive surgery, and we can do a very precise procedures with a 
huge success. And um, right now, doing the parsplenal vitrectomy with a small gauge is, uh, in a non-complicated eye, obviously, uh, the chance of success is up to 95%, which is huge. It wasn't like that like, you know, 20 years ago. Wow. And the technology has evolved. We have like a better understanding of how to fix the retinal detachment. We have better equipment. Uh, in a normal retinal detachment, uh, usually the chance of success, as I said, is 95%. If the retinal detachment happens because of the ruptured globe, the bad trauma, or the retinal detachment is very chronic, obviously there are other factors involved that will kind of decrease the chance of success. But overall, with modern technology and microinvasive surgery and um, other treatment modalities that we have, we have a very good chance of uh, saving the vision and improving the vision in most of the patients. Now, what is recovery like for the patient and how long does it take before they are recovered? Uh, I put it in two different categories. Obviously, after the surgery, there is like a one or two weeks of recovery from the surgery itself. Uh, but the second and the most important part of the recovery, I call it visual rehabilitation or visual recovery. And that will take a long time because when the retinal cells are separated from backbone of the eye and the patient has retinal detachment, uh, first step is to put the retina back in place. But the retina is not fully functional right away. And it takes time for those cells and the retina kind of wire up again, make that connection again to the previous area that it was attached to. And uh, th that visual recovery in patients with retinal detachment is usually long. And based on my experience, uh, most of the patients, they gain most of the vision back um, six to nine months after the surgery. It's a very slow, gradual process. And I usually educate my patients that you're going to recover from surgery soon, but your visual recovery will take much longer and you need to be patient. Um, you know, immediately after the surgery, usually they don't have a good vision because as I explained, we fill the eye after retinal detachment repair with silicone oil or gas bubble. That will create a lot of haziness and distortion. So we have to wait until the eye is recovered. In terms of the silicone oil, obviously we keep it in the eye at least for six months to a year. But the gas bubble will be absorbed very quickly and within like six to eight weeks. And most of these patients, they are still recovering most of their vision immediately after that. Thank you so much to Dr. Amir Yazdanyar. He's an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual science and neuroscience and physiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how to prepare your child for surgery. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If a child in your life has an illness or injury that requires surgery, no matter how minor the procedure, it's a big deal to the child and to his or her caregivers. Here to talk with me about how to prepare a young person for surgery is pediatric surgeon, Dr. Mickey Kalish. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Kalish. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this. So what percentage of your surgeries are for scheduled things and what percent are for emergencies? Yeah, unfortunately, right now with COVID, we're not able to schedule elective cases. So the majority of our procedures right now are urgent or emergent surgeries. I would say about th in the usual times, I would say about 30 to 40 percent are acute non-scheduled cases and the remaining are more elective scheduled cases that we plan out in clinic. So as a pediatric surgeon, I imagine you take care of a variety of illnesses or injuries, but do you yourself have a specialization? One of the great aspects of being a pediatric surgeon is that we're trained to take care of a variety of illnesses, whether it be trauma, critical care, or diseases of the chest and belly. Um, my special interest lies in um, critical care, which is in parallel with my research interests, and minimally invasive surgery, where we use a camera and long instruments to perform surgery. So what's the smallest child that you've operated on? 
um, it was it was probably around 450 grams, which is roughly a pound. Um, the baby was born early at 22 weeks gestation instead of the usual 40 weeks. So all of the organ systems are pretty fragile at that age. And this baby had a hole in his intestine that required an operation. And you're able to do that with, like you, you mentioned the instruments, the long instruments and... Great question. This is a case where you'd not be able to do minimally invasive surgery with long instruments. This ends up being a laparotomy or a bigger incision, which in a baby, you can actually do a relatively small incision and still get to the part that you need to. But they're so small. I mean, I just am trying to visualize this. Your hands are probably bigger than the baby. The hand, our hands, usually they can kind of fit into the palm of your hand, uh, but we use special um, glasses that have um, magnifying glasses on them so we can see everything a little bit better and smaller things. All right, now, what is the oldest or the largest child that you would operate on as a pediatric surgeon? The general cutoff for pediatric surgery is over 18 years of age for general surgery, and for, for trauma, it's over 15 years of age. And the reason for this is that many of the surgical issues at those ages transition from being neonatal and congenital pediatric pathology to more adult-type issues. What would you say are the advantages of having a child surgery performed at a children's hospital because you're part of Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital versus elsewhere? Yes, exactly. So because our surgeries are performed upstate, which as you said, is a children's hospital, we have the benefits of having all of the resources that a children's hospital has in our operating room. And so this includes specialty trained pediatric anesthesiologists and subspecialists. And it also means we have nurses that have specific pediatric training and child life specialists who can help to make sure that both the parent and the child are comfortable and with age appropriate interactions. And then if they end up staying in the hospital during recovery, that's in the children's hospital, obviously. That's correct. Um, the children's hospital um, tends to be on the 11th or 12th floor. Most of our post-surgical patients um, go to the 11th floor. And each room is equipped with an individual bathroom and a pull-out sofa to try to make the stay as pleasant as possible. And similarly, our hospital has the same pediatric trained nurses and support staff. And again, child life is always available. Well, I know it must vary depending on the child's age, but I wanted to talk to you about how you prepare a child for surgery, say um, a toddler. Yeah, I, I find that um, I tend to prepare each child a little bit differently, like you said, depending on their age, but also the sense that I get from them. Some kids are a little more nervous and want all the details. Some are not as interested and would rather not know as much. So I first try to gauge the child when I meet them. Toddlers tend to be pretty easy because they're not yet at the point where they necessarily comprehend what a surgery is. The one thing that I think makes a difference for a toddler is not being able to eat before surgery. That's usually the thing that impacts them the most. They don't understand why they can't, and they're more comfortable when they can. Um, so we do try to maximize their eating time. Um, so for instance, they can have clear liquids up to two hours before their surgery, breast milk four hours before, formula six hours before, solids eight hours before, et cetera, just to try to make it a little bit easier for them. So what are some of the fears and concerns that you've heard from some of your patients before surgery? The biggest fear is, of course, not only the anesthesia itself, but the surgery. And most children do better when we take away that unknown um, because they usually imagine things way worse than they actually are. So I think that really having good communication with them, especially um, school age, if they're understanding it and young teens, so that they feel like they're a part of the decision making can be useful. Um, this is another time that um, our child life team um, becomes really important. We have an incredible team who are um, always available, not only in the hospital and at the in the operating room, but they can even do preoperative phone calls and tours to help make the experience more comfortable. Um, right now, they're actually working on a virtual option because obviously we're not um, able to do in-person tours at the moment. And so there is a video on the Center for Children's Surgery website that shows kids what a typical day looks like when they come in for surgery. So even if you're not able to come into the hospital beforehand, you can um, watch that, but you can also talk to um, Child Life. And they can talk to the, both the parent as well as the child about what to expect, what to bring, and some of those common fears and misconceptions. So that they know uh, what to put in their bag if they bring a, a what to pack in their bag and, and what to wear. That's so. exactly right. Well, this is Upstate's uh, HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with pediatric surgeon, Dr. Mickey Kalish, about preparing your child for surgery. We've talked a little about um, how you address ch the child. How do you prepare the parents? Because I imagine there's a range of 
anxiety levels, shall we say, um, with some parents? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the one thing we really try hard to do is to go through the whole procedure when we meet in clinic and discuss everything, including the risks and benefits then. And this allows parents to think about things um, so that they can develop questions, and then we can rediscuss the day of the procedure. This helps them so that they're not overwhelmed with information right before surgery, um, and it should help to take out some of the, the unknowns of the day. Are there things that you uh, can advise parents to do at home in the days ahead of surgery that will kind of help, you know, prepare for the day of? Yeah, absolutely. So I find that kids are pretty intuitive, even if they're not yet speaking. And so I think that being honest with kids is probably the most important thing. And I would try to caution parents not to avoid um, or caution parents to not talk about the surgery or to avoid and talk around the surgery. It's usually more stressful for the patient if they don't if they find out they're not having surgery, that they're having surgery until the day of the actual procedure. Um, the other thing is that routines are comforting, and so I suggest that you try to stick to usual routines when you have dinner, when you go to bed, because if the child senses things are off or that mom or, and dad are nervous, then it can sometimes feed into their own anxiety. Um, and then for older kids, it's good to encourage them to talk about the procedures and to ask questions, because if, if they feel like mom and dad are reluctant to talk about it, again, it, may, it might make the, the child themselves a little more nervous. So with the surgery, at what point are the parents um, separated from their child? Do they bring the child into the operating room? Unfortunately, parents can't come to the operating room with their child. And this is really just to ensure that the operating room has maintained uh, their sterility. The parent stays with their child through the whole preoperative preparation, and that allows them an opportunity to meet all of the providers who will be taking care of um, their child. Um, but then once it's time to go back to surgery, that's when they say their goodbyes. And then after surgery, we let the child wake up just a little bit. And as soon as they're awake enough to recognize their parent is there, we'll either bring the parent to them to see them or vice versa. So they're with somebody from the time they leave their parent. They're with somebody uh, until they're back in their parent's arms. That's exactly right. It's usually that one of the same nurses that they've met. So it's someone that the child has already seen. Well, let me ask you how COVID has changed um, the procedures or the preparations for surgery. You talked about the video um, that people are able to do, uh, you know, to sort of familiarize themselves with what to expect. Are there other things that um, COVID has impacted? Yes, yes. Now, of course, Upstate follows the CDC guidelines in terms of patient protection and screening. So when the parents and um, children are uh, first come in, they're provided screening questions as well as a temperature check at the entrance in addition to a fresh mask. Um, we have all of our children get a COVID test within five days of the procedure. This is important not only to protect the hospital staff, but it's especially meant to protect the patient because if they have COVID and they're undergoing elective procedure, that's not the right time to be putting them under anesthesia. Um, the other thing we do is um, instead of having the parents wait in a you know communal waiting room, we have them wait instead in their individual preoperative rooms. Um, the major unfortunate but obviously understandable condition with COVID is that only one parent can accompany the child to surgery and also even if they're admitted. Well, uh, we've talked a lot about preparing for surgery and the, the day of, but then after surgery comes recovery. So what are the concerns that you're always on the lookout for in children as they recover from surgery? The main thing initially is making sure they wake up well after the anesthesia because of the medications that we use to make them sleepy. Um, and we need to make sure they're breathing well after the breathing tube is removed. Um, this is super important for the younger infants, but especially those who are born early preterm. Um, after the anesthesia recovery period, the main things we look out for that's kind of universal to every surgery are pain control and infection. And then, of course, each surgery has its own unique set of associated risks that we also look out for. So how do you handle pain control, um, particularly like in a baby who the baby can't talk and tell you that they're in pain? How do you decide how much pain medicine they need? Yeah, that can be challenging. All of our nurses um, and support team are trained to work with infants and children, and so they're trained to recognize signs that might suggest they're in pain. So, for instance, if a baby is particularly fussy, this could be an indication of pain, but this is going to be challenging babies who um, aren't able to eat because obviously that fussiness could more be attributable to the baby being hungry. Um, so we look for some other more objective things like changes in their vital signs, like their heart rate, which would increase um, if they're in pain. Um, in most procedures, we use local anesthesia or numbing medicine to help with pain control. 
Um, and then for most same-day procedures, kids often don't need anything more than Tylenol or Motrin if they're old enough for pain control. We seldom need to use narcotics in kids. Do you think that kids typically heal better and faster than adults after surgery? Kids are amazing. Yes, they do seem to feel have. They do seem to heal faster, um, and the incisions are usually less noticeable. They heal just so well. Um, so after surgery, I often don't really restrict their activity too much. And especially in toddlers, it's pretty tough to restrict their activity anyway. But I find that kids tend to self-limit what they do just based on what they're feeling up for. So they may be more apt to want to get out of bed, whereas an adult may want to rest a little bit more. Yes, so true. Yes. Well, in, in adult surgery, I know minimally invasive techniques are being developed for more and more different types of procedures. Is that true with children? It is true. It is true. For general surgery, um, minimally invasive techniques started really with appendectomies, which is one of the most common procedures we do. And then we got pretty good at that. So we started doing gallbladders and then we started doing bowel surgery and lung work and so on. And in the same way, we've continued to push the envelope in children to make sure that we're getting um, the same surgeries accomplished with smaller incisions, less pain, and ideally a, a shorter hospital stay. So in kids, we similarly um, started out with apnectomies and gallbladders, and we've continued to expand um, our repertoire. So now we do um, hernias, uh, repair pyloric stenosis, and um, removing um, um, extra parts of bowel um, called meckles. Can you talk about the benefits of a minimally invasive technique uh, in a child? Yeah, the, the main benefit is really the smaller incisions. So with those smaller incisions, you not only have less pain after surgery, but then you also have a better um, cosmetic outcome. And then from a surgeon perspective, it can often give us greater reach through the, through the abdomen and also through the, the lung cavity, as well as better visibility. Great. And now I'm imagining these tools um, have to be smaller for smaller people than they are for the adult for the ro robotic tools, right? Yeah, that's true. So we do both laparoscopy and robotic techniques and they're they're kind of the, the same, flip side of the same coin. Um, with uh, laparoscopic surgeries, we'll use smaller ports and smaller instruments. So for instance, in adults, we'll use kind of five millimeter ports and in kids, we'll even use something as small as a three millimeter port, which is the um, access point to the belly that we use to put the instruments in. In the robot, um, pediatric surgeons have started dabbling in robotic surgery, but the problem that we have is that um, the port sites are still larger than those we use in, laparos in laparoscopic surgery. And so that can make a big difference in a small child because then you lose the advantage of the smaller incisions. I see. Well, before we wrap up, can you tell us about the research you've been involved with um, in lung diseases and critical care? Yes, um, I've been interested in lung injury and critical care since I was a surgery resident. Um, I did a research fellowship in the Upstate Critical Care Lab under um, Professor Gary Neiman. Uh, lungs can get injured for a variety of reasons, like infections and um, inhalation injury or uh, trauma where you get bruises and rib fractures. And the lungs can even get inflamed just when the body is really ill and fighting off some other process. So my research has been focused on how and why the lung gets secondarily injured, as well as understanding how mechanical ventilation or the breathing tube impacts the subunits of the lung. And so now that I've rejoined the, the lab at Upstate, I'll be focusing some of our research um, a little bit more towards the neonatal and pediatric realms. Oh, very interesting. I want to thank you uh, for your time. Thank you to Dr. Mickey Kalish. She's a pediatric surgeon at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Pediatric kidney dialysis next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital offers pediatric hemodialysis, and today I'm speaking about this important service with the Director of Nephrology, Dr. Scott Sherman. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sherman. Thank you for having me. Can you describe what hemodialysis does? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hemodialysis is replacement of the things your kidneys do. 
So removal of extra fluid and waste products um, that otherwise would be a person's urine. Um, and in persons who, whose kidneys have failed, whose kidneys do not perform those functions uh, adequately, those waste products and fluid, fluids can build up and lead to really significant problems, very high blood pressure um, and other uh, symptoms that really are not compatible with uh, long-term life. Um, yeah. So you focus on children with kidney diseases that would um, require dialysis of some sort? Yeah. How, do, how does that work when it involves a child? Do they come to the hospital or how does that work? Yeah, so um, uh, within the last year, we've opened a pediatric centered dialysis center within the four walls of University Hospital. So previous to this, our kids that required dialysis received it at a outpatient center uh, that uh, focuses otherwise exclusively on adults and therefore is focused mostly on the needs of, uh, of adults. And bringing that service into the hospital has uh, allowed us to build a team um, that can really focus on the needs of our kids. That means their physiologic needs because performing the dialysis in children, smaller people um, with different physiologies than adults is different and often more complex. And so we have a team that is trained to be able to serve those needs. And also the needs of kids and their families in a very trying circumstance with sometimes hard procedures um, and families going through a, a hard time with a child that's chronically ill and requiring uh, treatments at least three times a week to sustain them. So our team includes pediatric dialysis nurses uh, uh, obviously physicians, pediatric nephrologists like myself and my colleagues, uh, and uh, social workers, dietitians, child life specialists that really help the kids uh, and the families and be able to really bridge um, uh, 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 them uh, through a, a hard time. So what age children are we talking about? Uh, well, really from infants up until uh, approximately age 21. Uh, we sometimes will do um, persons uh, older even than 21 if they have significant developmental problems. So, you know, we have children who um, have sometimes severe autism. Um, or other developmental problems and performing dialysis in an adult uh, centered facility is extremely uh, stressful and difficult for them and their families. So yeah, we've done children as, as small as seven or eight pounds, not long after birth that have been born with kidneys that really cannot otherwise sustain them um, uh, and up. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Scott Sherman. He's the Director of Nephrology at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. And we're talking about hemodialysis. Now, another term I've heard is peritoneal dialysis. Is that the same thing or can you tell us the difference? Sure, so there are two basic types of dialysis, the hemodialysis in which uh, patients um, have a, what are called access. And so a device, whether it be a catheter or other, where blood is pumped um, from their body into a filter, we call it like an artificial kidney. 
and that uh, cleans the blood and extra fluid. And then that cleaned blood is pumped back into their body. And those treatments generally last about four hours. And, and there's uh, generally three treatments a week, though for very small children uh, uh, under age two, um, there often those treatments have to be done even four or five days a week to provide um, really what they need. Um, so the other type of dialysis, peritoneal dialysis, is one that we uh, train the families to be able to do at home. And if it's possible um, for uh, the patients to receive peritoneal dialysis, we, we try to do that, but often the uh, children's underlying problems preclude that from happening. So the peritoneal dialysis involves a, a catheter that is implanted uh, surgically in the sac that surrounds your bowels, which has thousands of tiny little blood vessels, and a special solution is placed into that sac and draws out waste products. And that's a treatment that's done nightly, generally when the patients are asleep using a, a small machine, again, that we train the families to, uh, to uh, use and perform. How do you determine that a child's kidneys are malfunctioning to begin with? Like, what are some of the symptoms a parent, you know, would, would notice? Yes, so um, the first symptoms that their families generally note are fatigue, um, uh, generally reduced school function, uh, increased uh, need for sleep, going to, these are kids that transition from very energetic to going to bed at six o'clock in the evening kind of thing, as their kidney function declines. Um, we generally hope to be able to intervene before the advancement of symptoms to that level. Uh, we often know that the kids have um, kidney disease. Um, often these are kids that were born with mal uh, malformed kidneys, um, and that is often evident in ultrasounds uh, of their moms before birth, and we follow them after that. Or they've had a urinary infection that clues us into the underlying malformation of their kidneys and we begin following them, or they have some other problem they acquire through their life um, that leads to blood in the urine or accumulation of fluid and that diagnosis is made. And then we monitor, we try and treat those uh, uh, problems, but if uh, their kidney failure advances, we try and intervene before they have those types of symptoms. So it sounds like there's a lot of reasons a child may end up needing uh, dialysis. What are the physical effects of the loss of kidney function for children? Uh, the, uh, one of the major ones, uh, Amber, is failure of uh, adequate growth and development. Um, so children with uh, kidney failure, particularly advanced kidney failure, often do not grow adequately. Um, we do have growth hormone and that can be helpful, um, uh, but the uh, kids are um, often much shorter than their uh, peers. Um, nutrition can be difficult. Um, children with kidney failure require much more uh, nutrition, calories and protein than other children. And at the same time, their advanced kidney failure um, uh, uh, reduces their appetite. So we have this, you know, this paradox where they need more calories but can't really take them in or feel like they should take them in. Um, and so the dialysis um, helps uh, uh, helps relieve those symptoms. It often doesn't. Uh, improve uh, growth uh, to normal. That, um, when it's advanced, often requires a successful kidney transplant. And really, dialysis for all of our kids is a bridge 
to them eventually getting a successful kidney transplant. I wanted to ask you to sort of walk us through what dialysis is like for a child. How do you as a pediatric nephrologist go about preparing a child for dialysis mentally? We're fortunate to have a team that is really experienced and uh, trained uh, to be able to do just that. Um, we uh, belong to a consortium, a nationwide consortium of pediatric dialysis providers that um, helps uh, develop tools just as you're describing. So we have picture books, uh, we have videos, we have dolls um, that we can provide the families um, and uh, really to go step by step of what they can anticipate um, as they go through the process of training, um, surgeries, uh, and the treatments themselves. Do, what do they feel during the dialysis? Is it is it obvious to the person that there's fluid movement happening? Our goal, I should say, is really for the treatments to have minimal or no symptoms. So for hemodialysis, that sometimes can be difficult to achieve that goal consistently. Um, uh, taking removing a fair amount of fluid. Think of it that we're removing in 12 hours a week uh, what your kidneys are generally removing in a 168-hour week. Um, and so doing that in that interval of time can lead to changes that uh, produce symptoms. So those can be cramping and nausea. We do our very best uh, and our staff is very attuned to our patients to be able to deliver the treatments in a way that really minimizes that. And then we have a strong dietary team that works with the kids and their families to try and minimize the amount of fluid that they accumulate in between treatments. And that's key to being able to reduce the symptoms they have. How many weeks is typical for a child to be on dialysis? Well, they're on dialysis until they get a transplant. So it, it could be many months? Months or years. I mean, um, so uh, generally our kids are able to get a transplant within one to two years, but there can be circumstances that can make that hard. Um, but again, our goal is for all our kids to um, get a successful transplant. I see. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Scott Sherman. He's an associate professor of pediatrics and the director of nephrology at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Emily Ellison is a third-year MFA poet and student at Texas State University. Her work has appeared in several journals, including Rock and Sling, Haiku, and Southward. I would like to read an excerpt from her beautiful essay, In the Presence of Bees, which highlights the tension and love in a family when one person has control over all the others. When my family sells the ranch after five years of poverty, due to land too stubborn to produce food or sustain the animals roaming it, they move to Oregon, buy a plot of land, and try once more at reaping joys instead of tragedies. My father orders new bees, starting hives over from the beginning, with remarkable patience and adoration. He places a chair near the encasements to sit with them, sometimes reading a book on construction, sometimes simply sitting with coffee in the love of solitude particular to my father and his father before him, and me as well. 
For hours he lingers between relaxing with the bees and building the house he endeavors to erect from scratch, mostly by himself and my contributions over summer breaks. Now his gift to my mother is her dream home where she can lounge and craft while cooking and taking care of the kids. This vision though has spanned years and is still unfinished. My father continues but slows, doing what he can as he ages. His absence became his presence. My mother of the five living there was tasked with feeding, cleaning, and bringing income through her new occupation as a realtor. She toured lavish places defined by the plumbing and heating working. She came home to our place with its uninsulated cracks and gaps in the walls, which he says brings us closer together. From the fissures between floors, the sounds of each family member bounce off the bared foundation's concrete through a central portal where the staircase spans three floors. No silence exists, even as we bury ourselves in the remotest nooks, being alone both an impossibility and an inescapable weight. Sometimes tears can pause mid-cheek like a drop of honey. Sometimes they fall like a sheet I could sleep in. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what to expect at a virtual medical visit. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.